You are listening to a message from Victory Alabang. Get the latest updates by visiting victoryalabang.org or like us on facebook.com slash victoryalabang. We are in our sixth week of the series entitled Unwavering. And I hope that one, you have been enjoying it. Two, you have been learning more about this God that we are all worshiping. I was 15, 16 years old when I became a Christian. The person who shared the gospel to me invited me to this rock concert. <laughs> and uh, as a person, as a young person who likes music, he told me, bro, go to our place. It's not a church. Our place. <laughs> and there's good music. You listen to the music and you'll just enjoy. So I went and uh, I, I was inspired by the music. They clapped a lot, cried a lot sat down, heard the preaching. And then I was invited into this small group. Back in the day, they called it the small group where a group of men like us would sit down and share our emotions. You must imagine it was so weird for me to start doing that. And listening to their stories, I started hearing words that I never heard in my life in that context. And I started concluding that sometimes Christian talks so weird. <laughs> that uh, Christians have the words, they have words that only them can understand. You know, like when you ask them, oh, kumusta ka na? Oh, how are you? They will say, oh, by the grace of God, I'm okay. And they would say stuff like, in faith, bro, in faith. And then there's those, there's so many things, in fact, that when I heard during that first meeting, I was sitting there in my mind, I was thinking, what are they saying? While I have heard of grace, I have heard of faith, I have heard of God, many things that they say do not resonate with me the way it resonates to them. And that's what we're doing in the past few weeks. We're filling in meaning to this word, faith. Because faith can mean so many things. Faith can be an empty word for all it is, actually. We can say faith all we want, and we can mean all different things. But the best way to actually understand what faith is, is to come to terms to the God of this Bible. And to understand, what is faith really? This is my family, and that's my one-year-old baby who celebrated her uh, first birthday last week. And that's my beautiful wife, Aizel. Her name's Tala. That's the name at the back of that picture. Right now, she is one year old and she's learning to walk. And she's learning also that she can walk faster. <laughs> and also, she has learned that hard objects are not supposed to be bumped. So right now, she has, um, I think, two contusions on her forehead and she continues to run. Many times, I think to myself, huh, how and when will be the time when she will learn that it's, you know, don't run that way, don't bump on those spaces. And I want the result, but not the process, right? I want the result that she would be able to walk well and not be, but I don't want the process of her bumping and going down and slowing down and, and all those painful things. She cries and I try to console her. And as we look at the story of Abraham, as much as we're looking at faith, we're also looking at the process, right? Because many times we read the story of Abraham and, and we like the end product of it, right? That in the New Testament, he is regarded as this guy who did not waver, a man of faith, the father of many nations. And that's the product. But many times the process is something that we brush aside because, you know, uh, the process, as you all know at this point, in six weeks, you all know the process is not as easy as it seems. The temptation 
in reading these narratives, specifically of Abraham and many of these fathers of faith, is that to read these stories and to think that the story is about Abraham and to think the story is about Sarah or Isaac or Hagar. But I invite you today as we read these stories and as we read this part of this story, I, I, I sure hope we have more time to tackle more about this. But as we zoom into one place in his life, in his process, so to speak, I hope that we don't just see him. Just like the New Testament when they say, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That we will see God and what he is doing. Not just Abraham and what he is doing. Because in fact, the more we look at these stories, the more we will realize it was not about Abraham. It was about the God of Abraham. That as Paul describes him, where our title comes from, that if he did not waver in unbelief, it was because of God. And that's what we're looking at in this series, Unwavering. We're looking at the life of Abraham. We're looking at this character. And the more we look at his life, the more we see who his God is. And as we just continue and close this series, I pray really in our hearts that these stories would allow us to really encounter the personal God of this Bible. Let's all stand up as we read this section of this story. We have gone from Genesis chapter 12 for the past few weeks, 12 to around 17, chapter 17 last week. Bodhi preached a wonderful preaching on the life and, and the doubting of uh, that family which resulted to the birth of Ishmael. And then at this point, at this point we will be reading that part of the story where God again shows up. And let us see how He would show Himself faithful in the midst of the impossibilities that surround them. Let's all read Genesis chapter 18. We'll read from 18 verses 1 up to 15. And then we'll jump right into chapter 21 verses 1 to 3. Let's all read Genesis chapter 18. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent of the door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent and Sarah said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf and tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds of the milk and a calf that he had prepared it and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, the way women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, I am worn out, and my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? 
And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. And Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. We'll jump right into chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah what he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. At the time which God had spoken to him, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you because you are the God of all things. That in your sovereignty, in your timing, in your goodness, all things come to pass for your glory and our joy. I pray that today as we look at this story, you would speak to us in the most personal manner and you would move us to you. For your glory we pray. Amen and amen. We read a big chunk of that story because I believe that's, that's a really interesting part of this narrative. At this point in chapter 18, if you have been with us from the first time of the series, we started with chapter 12. And we have heard and we have seen how Abraham was called. And then you would see this guy who lived in a place of comfort. And God calls him out of that place of comfort. Remember this? And to go to this place of uncertainty with the certainty that God was with him. If you remember the promise from chapter 12, you would see it this way. Now the Lord said, Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you. These are some sort of the things that come with him following. A great nation, I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Here we see how God calls him out of his place to go to a journey that he doesn't know where. He doesn't say where. But he says, I will show you. He focuses Abraham on the fact that God will be with him as he goes. And he gives him these wonderful promises. And as this develops, you'll know in the past few weeks that this quote-unquote promises were formed into a covenant. Remember that week? When we talked about the covenant between Abraham and God, when God himself laid down the foundation of a relationship with him. And while the covenant was formed, he was sleeping. Remember this? And, and it was God who sealed the covenant without him doing anything. And that's the covenant that we carry on to this story. But we know this, that as, that as we look at this narrative, we see them starting in Ur, then they went to Haran, Remember that? And then they went to Canaan. Haran was the place of, of this multi-gods and all these comforts, so to speak. God called them out of that and went to Canaan. But when they arrived in Canaan, there was what? Remember this? Famine, right? The first thing they encountered in the promised land was famine. So they went to Egypt. Then they went back to Canaan. We visit our story at this point when they had already, remember that story last week when Sarai and Abraham conspired so that they would have a son. And they used Hagar. After that narrative, God shows up again and seals his covenant through circumcision, chapter 17. A beautiful imagery of how God seals his relationship 
with His people. And at this point, on what we have read, we have a part of the story where God shows up again. Many times it does not resonate to us, this narrative, because when we read it, it seems to be too fast and details are not there. But when you imagine it, Abraham was 70 years old when he was called out of the land of Haran. 70. At this point, he is 99 years old. So this is 29 years of waiting for that promise that you will have a son. Can you imagine this? So they've done everything that they can do. In fact, they have tried to have a son through Hagar. 29 years. At this point, they would have realized this is impossible. All of these markers, we tried sinning, we've tried doing it the right way, we've tried everything, but it's not coming out the way we think it would be. And what now? <laughs> but God keeps on showing up and reminding that I will fulfill my promise. And that's a weird part of this story because how? Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 to 3, and the Lord appeared to him. I want to pause there and have us think about this before we even progress. Because many times we read phrases like this and brisk through and say, whoa, of course God appeared. In many ways, we have missed the awe of reading phrases like this, right? Of, of realizing, wow, you know, that if you're reading this and you come across the fact that God appeared again, <laughs> it should make us pause and think, wait, oh, he keeps on appearing to a man who in many ways have done so many things against his will. <laughs> we have missed the awe of realizing when God appears because many times the focus of this narrative is Abraham <laughs> and what Abraham is doing, what he's deciding to do. But the thing is, the story is not about Abraham only. And whilst we can learn many things about Abraham and what he did, and he is commendable Hebrews, and Paul would commend him, the story is about God. And whenever we read the scripture and we see verses like this, we need to pause and think about it. God appeared again. After all the many downfalls of this man, Abraham, he appeared again. And this time, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Again, when we read this, we can breeze through it and say, okay, three men. But we can ask many questions as we read this. Who are the three men? Why three? Trinity? No. no. <laughs> Why show up now? <laughs> God has been showing up, but this is the first time, it seems at least, that God showed to some extent, physically, it seems, at least. We have no way of knowing who the three are. Some commentators would say two are angels, one is a theophany. Theophany is a fancy word to say an image or an expression of God in the Old Testament. Some say those are angels. In fact, you'll know that in chapter 19, these two angels would go and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But with the lack of details that we have here, what we know is this. 
When Abraham saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and he bowed himself. When we read this, again, because of our norms, if you imagine there's a thousand of years apart from where we are to when the writing happened. And many of the customs that they do, we don't. Like, I mean, sharing your husband to a slave would never come to our minds. But it was a thing back then. A sojourner coming to a different land and the king getting his wife is something that is illegal today. But the absence of international laws in the, that time would be weird and it's okay for them to do that. Bowing to strangers or visitors is not something that we do unless you do that still today. But that's something that they do for visitors. Bowing down for coming visitors. And says, Oh Lord, and, and two things here, you should notice whilst reading the Old Testament, the Lord here is all capital and the Lord here is one capital letter and the rest small. Because this is a personal name. This is Yahweh. So, and Yahweh appeared to him. And the other one is Sir, Adonai, Master. Master, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. So he sees these three people and to some extent, he kind of feels that these guys are some sort of divine visitation. Maybe. But the more we will look unto it, the more we see what he means. So, tracking back. The Lord appears again. And then there are three men. And then he did this kind of feast. Like he asked um, flour to be bought and then this sort of eating party that they would do. And then, and he stood by them under the tree, Abraham, while they ate, they said to him, and that's one area, of course, of Bible reading that we normally miss out because some people would ask, who said what? They said to him, sabay-sabay ba sila? Like, one, two, three. <laughs> Where is Harry your wife? But notice that the narrator is taking them collectively. Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, Abraham said, she is in the tent. This reveals to some extent the purpose of the visitors. That the visitors were, again, were trying to track is some sort of divine visitation and their purpose somehow is Sarah, his wife. And again, this is something that we rarely realize and pause to think about. Because we read this and go, yeah, of course, they'll look for Sarah. It's their purpose. But this is a heavily patriarchal society where women many times are not even named in written works. You look at genealogies and rarely you would see women. And now the divine visitation is looking for a woman. That's something to catch in this narrative. Her is Sarah, your wife. And now we know that there's something divine with our visitors. Because the Lord, Yahweh, is speaking through them. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time, next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. 
So Sarah laughed. First, the assurance. I will surely return to you about this time next year. We must imagine this in the most vivid way that we can. They have heard this promise <laughs> for 29 years. You realize this? For 29 years, this coming and this, this promise of a child, this promise of a nation, this covenant of, of many nations has been promised and, and then something still is lacking in their house. A son. And in fact, when you read this narrative, it's highlighting something that the author wants us to see. That Abraham and Sarah were old. They were advancing years. And the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Repetition in the Bible is an important part of writing in the Hebraic language. Why? Because they didn't have underlines that we have today. When they repeat concepts, they're highlighting something. What is the author highlighting? He's highlighting the fact that it's impossible for this couple to have a son. It is impossible. They were old. They were advancing years. The way of women, meaning their menstrual flow, would not. It ceased with Sarah. So it's like saying, Uy, matanda ka na. Tapos may edad ka na. You imagine the repetition and the weight of this to the readers. And it should highlight that fact to us. That as we read this narrative, we're looking at an impossible situation. In fact, the response of Sarah was that of Genesis 17, 17, when Abraham also laughed. Because God had said this to Abraham, and he laughed. Now at this point, Genesis 18, 12 Sarah laughed to herself. I'm not sure if you have been in those moments when all you can do is laugh at something because it's just so impossible to happen. It's like, you've done everything. You've cried. I can imagine them. They've cried. They've gone and, you know, done everything. They have sacrificed a lot of things. They have gone from comfort to uncertainty. They have so many things that they have done in their lifetime, 29 years, waiting for this promise. And all they can do now is this. <laughs> now, <laughs> now that I am old and my Lord is old, dinamay pa si Abraham, di ba? Tanda na ako, tanda rin siya. Shall I even have pleasure? And, and that's weird and funny, but that's what the Bible is saying to us. There are moments in our lives when we are put in situations where impossibilities just squeeze the emotions out of us. <laughs> and all we can do is, <laughs> we don't even know what the laugh is. Is it of frustration? Is it of accepting it? It seems to be of frustration. Because after this, Yahweh would ask her, did you laugh? And she would say no. <laughs> because she was afraid. It's as if, I think, maybe, that it is of frustration. We have to think about this narrative and place our eyes on what God is doing in this place. In this time of history, in this time of this covenant, when God promised something and all clues point to impossible. <laughs> all things point to they cannot. They've tried everything they could. 
if they had artificial insemination, I think they would try that. <laughs> They've tried everything they could. But it wouldn't come. 29 years. An important question is that when, when we look at the Bible and we see these impossibilities, it's impossible that this would happen. It's impossible that uh, you would have a child. It's impossible that they would cross the large river. It's impossible that God would rise up from the dead. It's impossible that Paul would continue doing what he's doing. When we see impossibilities in the scripture, how do we view God? Or to superimpose that question to our lives in the midst of our personal life impossibilities, how do we view God? Because that's an important question, I think. Because if we can, we would, right? The more we, when we are faced with things that are problematic, we try our best to resolve it. In a world of do-it-yourself, do-it-yourself food, do-it-yourself clothes, do-it-yourself your home. I'm never the handyman. I love books and reading and writing and a lot of other things, but never fixing the house. <laughs> never, when the light is busted, I'd rather call someone to do it for me. My brother, my dad, or someone else. I'm never that guy. But if I'm pushed to a corner where I have to do it, right? I would. I would at least try <laughs> to fix things. And sometimes we're like that. In a do-it-ourself culture, we try to fix things. We try to navigate through the many slopes and curves of life. But there's no do-it-yourself faith. There's none of it. There's no way we could construe a faith that is based on our ability to do it. Because many times, we will be pushed to an impossible position and we will see, oh, I can't. And in those moments, a crucial question is that, how do I view God? How does this shape my view of God? That as I read the narrative of Abraham in his impossibility, how is God being shown? Because faith can be a tricky word. It can have two opposite swings. Some people use faith as if it is some sort of a medallion that when they have it, I'm okay. You know those people? I have a friend in college when I became a Christian. I was new in the Christian walk. I was just starting to read the Bible for myself. I was just particularly new. And this guy who was already a Christian for so long, he was my classmate and we had this project in college. And then I, I said to him, Oh, bro, you haven't submitted your project yet. And said, bro, in faith, papasako. Made me question what faith is. Like, so is faith, dibali na lang, bahala na. And some people think of faith that way. In the midst of impossibilities, they just say, well, <laughs> I wouldn't do my part, but yeah, God, you do your part. <laughs> a faith in faith. Some people go to the opposite swing where the faith is only placed on the self. So long as I have all my abilities and I can do it myself, then I would be okay. And both swings are not in the scripture. Both swings are not what faith should be at least from what God is showing us. Because let's look at how God introduced himself through this narrative, through this conversation. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
And that's an important question. In the midst when we're pushed to a corner of impossibilities, is there anything too hard for the Lord? And the, the phrase there, anything too hard, is an interesting phrase because our English language is limited to translate some of the concepts of the Bible. Must imagine that like Filipino, when we translate things to English, we miss some of the things, right? Just like this. The phrase, anything too hard for the Lord, misses some things. And one slant of it is, is anything too astonishing for the Lord? Is anything too amazing for the Lord to do? The, the word, the Hebrew word, pala, has that, that interesting slant. Is God surprised? <laughs> Are you surprised that God can do that for you? That's a good question. That in the midst of impossibilities, God introduces Himself as one who transcends those impossibilities. As one who goes over the limits of our minds. The infinite God. And, then, and many times we go into this Christian walk and compute things, right? You know people who like computing? Yeah, maybe the person right next to you, right? They like budgeting time. They like budgeting money. And you know, and that, that's good. It's not bad. I mean, you know, in fact, that's wisdom for a lot of us. But there are moments when you compute and it's not fitting your computation. Have you ever tried that? It's like as if 24 hours is not enough. You can stretch one more hour in the day so that you can do more or, or just accomplish more or rest more. I don't know. But in God's sovereign and entire goodness, in His amazing nature, He transcends all those impossibilities. And this is important as we talk about faith. Because we can talk about faith all we want. And we can say faith is putting your trust in the Lord. But if we don't know what kind of Lord this is, there's no sense of putting faith in a Lord that we don't know. If Whenever we hear the word God, A.W. Tozer says it's so right, that the word God, the meaning that we put in the word God is one of the most important things, if not the most important thing in our lives. Because we can talk about faith all we want, but if we do not know who God is, the God who there is, whom there's no thing too hard for Him. Faith is nothing but just mere believism. Modern day Christianity sometimes has been like that. Just believe, just believe, just believe. Just believe, just believe, just believe. Believe in what? Believe in who? Believe how? And those are important questions, right? Because we can believe all we want, but until we believe in the right and the true God, believe is empty. Think, let's think about this. Is anything too hard for this God that we're unraveling as we open our Bible every day, as we encounter people in, in our Christian community? Is anything too hard for that God that we worship? That's an important question. Because many times, the impossibilities supersede our understanding of who God is. That the impossibilities seem to be more important. That sometimes, even, God becomes a tool for us to achieve what we want rather than a person we worship. Abraham and Sarah, at this point of the narrative, a lot of things 
are impossible. But God responds by introducing an important concept is anything too amazing for God. In fact, Jeremiah 32, 17, Jeremiah prayed this prayer when the Babylonian kingdom was knocking on the doors of Israel. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, the Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. We must fill our minds with who God is so that we would have the right faith. We must know this God. We must preach this truth into our hearts every single day that we may be able to worship Him every single day. Because we can say Jesus all we want, but what kind of Jesus, what kind of God do we serve? As we think through this impossibility in the God that transcends Him, we look at, so in the midst of impossibilities, God remains faithful. God remains faithful. And that statement, again, is a Christianese. <laughs> you know, there's Chinese, Filipino, and Christianese. <laughs> a language that only Christians understand. God is faithful talaga. What do you mean? We need, must fill those words. God remains faithful. We must fill it with the right biblical truth for it to be true to our hearts. We can post it on Facebook. We can do it all we want. But until God fills that with meaning, it's nothing. God remains faithful means that He is consistent to Himself, right? He is self-consistent, one of those terms in, in theology. He, he remains consistent to what He has said in the past. My dad is a very consistent man. When I was in elementary, there would always be projects that I don't, I don't like doing. You know, and the teachers know that it's the parents who do it, but they give it anyway. You know that, right? <laughs> I remember a project when I was in grade four. We have to make an apron. Yeah, we had that project. Huh? So you, you buy that, uh, what do you call that? Um, kacha, uh, the flower sack. And then you'd have to cut it and sew the side and, and, you know, do all these kinds of embroidery and whatnot. And I hated it, okay? As a person who's always clumsy and, and you know, I hated it. So what I would do whenever I have projects that I, I don't like doing and I cannot do, I would always just place it on top of my dad's study table. And I would do that. It started when I was in grade three or four. I think that's one of the first, the apron. I would place it there with all the materials and the instruction from the, from the teacher. And I would sleep. And I know tomorrow, for sure, the apron is there. I know. Really. So every year, whenever I have those things, I have the project dustpan. Remember that? H-E, home economics. Right? You have to make a dustpan. How am I going to do a dustpan? Right? So I bought the, you know, the materials and all those things and I placed it again underneath my dad's study table. The instructions were on top of the table. And lo and behold, the next morning, it's there. I can pass it. My dad is a consistent man. That's why I know that when I place it on his hands, he will do it. <laughs> God is more consistent than my dad. <laughs> There's just so much more in, in our God that is so much more consistent than our human efforts can always do. 
that when He says He will, He will. Because He is faithful. His consistency has come from eternity past and it continue, would continue to eternity future. No bounds, that consistency. That when we say He is loving, He is loving from past to eternity future. When we say He is just and He will judge the wicked, He will from eternity past, eternity future. He will not change. That's why in the midst of our impossibilities, we can place that thing on our dad's study table because we can trust that he is consistent. He is faithful. In those moments that we try to fix it ourselves, sometimes he comes in to change and rework what we have done. We further look at this story and say, he says, is anything too hard in the lo- to the Lord? And then there's this wonderful phrase that I'd like us to think about at the appointed time. At the appointed time. I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. Now think about it in terms of who Sarah is and, and who Abraham is at this point of the story. 29 years of waiting. They've never heard God give some sort of a timeline, right? In fact, they've never heard God like give them a direction of any specificity, at least in our narratives in the Bible. He never like, this is where you go, this is how you build your house. Like, just go. I will bid you. I'll show you. And then, just I will give you sons and daughters in the future. But he has never said anything like this about this time, next year. And maybe this is one, one of the things that made Sarah, you know, think through it more. Because God is now telling them that my timeline is not your timeline. <laughs> that in terms of, of reading this narrative, we must see this. God's timing many times is not ours. <laughs> in a time where everybody's in a hurry, God is not in a hurry. In a time where everybody just wants to go somewhere, accomplish something, finish something, like this preaching, maybe, for some of you. There's an appointed time for that. God is not shaken. God is not moved by our schedules. And sometimes because we live in a life where pace is too fast, we think, and sometimes unknowingly, we think God is too slow. (laughs) But as a God who knows, as a God who exists outside of time, He knows for a fact, no, I'm not slow. I'm not fast. I'm just right. And this is important. The conception of who God is in relation to our time. His timing is always perfect and purposeful. In fact, maybe it is that. Maybe it's because it's purposeful. That's why it's perfect. That whenever He gives something or withdraws something, it is in the purpose of His grand glory. My daughter, one year old, if I start giving her a laptop, (laughs) I don't know what she would do with it. She might enjoy it, but she would just not maximize what it is. 
I think it was months ago when I was carrying her. She was, I think, seven, eight, six months old. I was having my coffee and she was crying. So I got her. Coffee was my own other hand. So she wants the coffee, right? I mean, you know, coffee was piping hot. So she tried to grab it. Her grip so strong. So I had to pull it out of her hand. The coffee went to my laptop. <laughs> and it's dead. <laughs> She wants the coffee. Had I given her that, would it do anything good to her? <laughs> she wants it so badly. She was crying. If I give it to her, she won't, it won't do her any good. When I think about this narrative and think about how God waited this long <laughs> for Him to fulfill His promise, when you read it, it's as if, why God? But when you think through this, you'll realize that His timing is perfect. You'll realize that it was at that point of desperation and impossibility that God showed Himself and said, you know what? I do not need your cooperation exactly, quote-unquote, you know. In your way, your sinful cooperation. <laughs> I just need your faith. I can accomplish what I deem to accomplish in the appointed time. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? That in the midst of impossibilities, God remains faithful to His character, to His timing. So let's feel meaning to that, that He remains faithful, that His timing is perfect and purposeful, that if He withdraws something from these narratives, that every time these things come together, it's fulfilling something grander than what we see right now. The temptation of this life is to be fixated on ourselves because that's what media talks about a lot, Right? Be yourself. Do it yourself. Um, just do it. <laughs> All those fixations on the self. Self-esteem, self-worth, self-whatever. But the Bible narratives forces us to look at God, not on the self. <laughs> the biblical narratives forces us to look at this God and say, wow, <laughs> in the midst of my inabilities, impossibilities, God is able still. That in the moments of our rush, we realize, must realize, I think, that the empty rush life of today must be placed under the sovereignty of God. There's two words that describe time in that language Greek. One is chronos, which is time that happens, that passes, right? No, it passes and it goes. That's where we live, chronos chronological, as we say in English. But there's another word for it, kairos, chance. A purposeful chance. A God-given moment or time. And when you think about it, Christians are not just called to live by the flow of chronos in its passing nature, but to live in every moment as a chance to see who God is. To know what God is doing right, right, right now. You can sit here and think of this as chronos, just time passing us by. Just waiting for the last word, amen, to leave. But you can think of it as kairos, a chance to encounter this God by reflecting on this wonderful, wonderful narrative in the scripture. And we can go out on Mondays up to Saturdays thinking that it's just chronos, a passing of time. Or we can think of it as kairos, a chance 
to worship God every single moment, to see Him in His fullness, in the way we work, the way we deal with people, the way we deal with one another. Gleason Archer says this beautifully, serving the Lord constantly brings what is not predictable or does not occur the way we think is best. So believers should glory in this, not be frustrated or go on being surprised. Gleason Archer is one of those translators of the New American Standard Bible. Interesting and intelligent guy. I like how he says this. If you're here and you're a Christian, you could relate to this, right? That many times our expectation of things, God goes above that in such a way that you never realize, oh, that's why. <laughs> and in this narrative, many times Abraham and Sarah could have been, um, God, son, now, I mean, you know, this would be the best time, I think. I mean, <laughs> we're old, so I can imagine when they were in their 80s, they were thinking about, whoa, okay. So what's happening now, God? When they're 90s and they reach, and Abraham reached 99. <laughs> Still. But we should not be frustrated. In fact, we should glory in this, as he would say. We should enjoy this. We look at this as Kairos, a chance to see what God is doing. A big chunk of narrative happens after chapter 18. And I wish I have time to think through um, this narrative of Sodom and Gomorrah. I, I wish really we could spend more time in 19 and 20 because that's, that's a wonderful chunk that talks about God's love and justice and an interplay in between the story of this, the promise fulfillment, the one year, the promise, and then a year after this will be fulfilled. What comes in between is this story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember this story? Many times, many people, especially non-Christians, ask God, God, if you're so good, why did you do this? Okay? And I would not try to resolve that here. I hope not to resolve that here. I don't think we have time to resolve that here, but I, I'll just say it this way. That God shows Himself as God of love in the chapters before this. Contrasts but complements this narrative. That God, yes, is the God of love. But the way He deals with righteous people and unrighteous people it's different as well when you look at this narrative. And that God on His perfect timing accomplishes His purposes. It's, it's complementing that narrative. And I wish, again, I encourage you to read that narrative and think through and pray through what God is doing in this narrative. But just, just a, an idea. You see Lot here as the guy who went away. Remember this guy? And stayed there. But God still rescued him that complements the narrative of Abraham being chosen in the midst of him not knowing when, still continued. And Lot comes out rescued. But right after that narrative, you have that narrative of Abraham again denying that Sarah is his wife. Remember? So the second time he denied her as his wife and then comes the story. A year after, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Repetition in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, is important. He said this, he had promised this. So he arrived and he did it. He's consistent like that. In our inconsistency, he's consistent like that. 
And Sarah conceived and bore him a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah born to him, Isaac. What's curious about his name is this. In the original language, it's Yitzhak. It literally is laughter. <laughs> literally. It's, you named your son, in Tagalog, Tawa. <laughs> Uy, Tawa. <laughs> laughter. Maybe a reminder. Remember the time when I told you this and you laughed? Now it's here. <laughs> Remember the time when you laughed either in frustration or in faith? In disbelief or in, a, in an amount of talaga ba? What's a reminder? God is faithful. He's faithful, consistent to His nature and character, to His covenant. And is faithful and consistent with his timing. He's faithful and consistent to his promises. God remains faithful. As we draw to this close in this narrative, we know for sure that after six weeks, after around 29 years in biblical time, this is finally, they have a child. Can you feel that, you know? Oh, buti na, nakarating tayo dito. Parang gano'n, diba? When you're reading this narrative and you go, Oh, finally they have a son. But God is not yet done, right? And in fact, when we think of this story and the impossibilities they went through, we should see a God that is faithful. This is in Romans chapter 4, verses 18 onwards. In hope against hope. Or in hope, he believed against hope. Hope. Have you ever said anything like that in English? That's Romans, again, chapter 4, verse 18. And that's a weird sentence to say. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever constructed a sentence that way, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> how did you believe? I, in hope, I believed against hope. Huh? <laughs> ah, okay, Th- that's weird, but Amplified Bible can help you think through that. But it, it's something like this, okay? In the loss of all the human hope that they have, they still believed through. That's that expression. In the midst of all human impossibilities, but because that's the hope that they have, actually, right? That they can have chi- children because, you know, I'm a guy, you're a woman, we're married, and all those things. But in the midst of that impossibility, they're old, they're advancing age, repetition, and woman, the woman way have ceased in Sarah. In hope... Again, so that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Paul writes, so shall we be. That we are to hope and believe against or sometimes beyond the human hopes. And this is said in the context of justification and the salvation of our souls. That Paul writes, and we're not justified by our ways or the things that we do or the things that we can do. That God is not impressed, so to speak. (laughs) But we must hope beyond what we can do. 
He did not weaken faith when he considered his own body, which was good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And here we got our title for this series. No unbelief made him waver. That in the midst of the many, probably, and most saliently in this narrative, the midst of many possibilities, it did not make him waver. Concerning the promise of God, he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Paul, in retrospect, thousands of years after, sees a faith that goes beyond self. Faith that is against human hope. Beyond this. In the midst of impossibilities, God remains faithful. I hope that we feel meaning, faithful to who He is, His character, His timing, to His promises, to His purpose. This life can be just like this picture, fixated in small screens, like me sometimes. <laughs> I walk with the phone on my face, and, and sometimes we do this in life. We fixate on the small screen. And we miss the big scene, right? <laughs> we fixate on this small screen and we miss what the big thing is. Sometimes we look at the Bible, look at life, look at our concerns and fixate on the small things and miss out what God is doing on a grand reality, on a grand scale that God is doing something to accomplish His grand purpose. I pray that in God's grace, He will allow us to see who He is. The next time you read the phrase, is anything too hard for the Lord or anything too impossible for the Lord, Luke writes it in the midst of the birth narratives of John. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Jesus crossed that line of impossibility. <laughs> Jesus was that which transcends our understanding of is anything too astonishing for the Lord? In fact, He became man. Anything more astonishing than that? He died on the cross to bear the sin of the world. Anything more astonishing than that? He rose again from the dead in full glory, showing forth He has defeated all things placed under His feet. Is anything too astonishing for the Lord? No, nothing. <laughs> what He has accomplished in the full scale of the gospel. Is there anything too astonishing for the Lord in your life? I pray that the cross, the truth of the scriptures would show you otherwise. Nothing is. Nothing is. Let's all pray. In silence, we think of you, O God. Because many times, in the noise of many things, we're too afraid of silence. So, in those moments, silence, I pray, Lord God, that you show forth yourself in our minds, in our hearts, 
that it will bear forth in fruit in the way we love other people, the way we love you, the way we love brothers in this church, the way we love other people outside this church. I pray that we would see you faithful. And that faithfulness means something far deeper than a post on a Facebook. That that faithfulness means something rather than just a slogan on our minds. That faithfulness is a story of how you in your scripture have shown and how you in our lives have moved sovereignly and fully. Thank you God for this moment. We praise you. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.